Good to see you here today. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. Last week, we wrapped up Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And today, we're going to uh, take the rest of chapter 3 all together. We're not going to read it all in one, one fell swoop. There's just a little bit too much to do. But uh, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. So this morning, let's look at the subject, competition and comparison. Competition and comparison. And we're just kind of taking in bites as we go through it. John chapter 3, we'll be dealing with verses 22 through, through 36. John 3, 22. I hope you have your Bible and you'll read along. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Ainon near Salim because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So John is setting the stage for what we're going to be focusing in on this morning. We're going to be seeing the, the greatness of John the Baptist and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But here we're just kind of getting the lay of the land, setting the stage. And John gives us some interesting information. We've already learned a couple of things here in these verses that we don't learn in the synoptics. The synoptics would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, we just found out that Jesus and his disciples have a ministry of baptism. Whoa, that's different. Where'd that come from? We don't hear that anywhere else in the New Testament, that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing folks. But now John's going to clarify something. Move down in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So Jesus is out there in the wilderness with his disciples. He's preaching and he's teaching, and his disciples are baptizing people, but Jesus himself is not. That's probably a good thing, don't you reckon? <laughs> Can you imagine? What if Jesus had been baptizing folks? Gary Berg said this. He said, imagine the sort of elitism that could have developed in the ancient church between those baptized by Jesus and those baptized by anyone else. <laughs> That's exactly how that would have gone, wouldn't it? Have you been baptized? Why, yes, I have. Well, who baptized you? John the Apostle. Oh, isn't that cute? Well, I was baptized by the Son of God. You know, so there you go. So that makes mine better than yours, right? I mean, that's just how that would have gone. Um, have, have you been baptized? Yeah, who baptized you? Judas Iscariot. Ooh, you know, <laughs> mm, you might want a mulligan on that one to do over. Um, by the way, notice something. So Jesus and his disciples out there in the wilderness, they're baptizing folks. But Jesus didn't baptize people. Now, wait a minute. He's the Savior of the world. God sent his Son into the world, not that the world would be condemned, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to save his people from their sins, and yet he did not baptize people. What does that tell you? Baptism doesn't save you. And that's what we get from the rest of the scripture, by the way. I didn't pull that out of thin air. That's what the Bible shows us. Baptism does not save you. You get saved when you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you understand he's the lamb of God uh, slain from the foundation of the world. He, he's the lamb of God who died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He was raised again. You repent, turn from sin and self and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, a risen savior. That's how you're saved. And you don't get baptized to be saved. You get baptized because you're saved. It comes after salvation. That's another sermon for another day. But notice that Jesus and his disciples, namely his disciples, they're baptizing people. Here's something else interesting John tells us we don't get from the synoptics. And that is that there's a time when John the Baptist's ministry overlaps Jesus' ministry. That's interesting. As you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke... 
uh, things, things move real quickly. And, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't get anything wrong. They're just, they have a message to convey to a target audience, and they select the material that conveys the message to the target, target audience. And so as you read the synoptics, we have Jesus getting baptized by John the Baptist. He goes into the wilderness. He is tempted by Satan. Next thing you know, John is imprisoned, and Jesus begins his Galilean ministry in the north, Galilee, north country. So it's boom, 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 just that quick. But John shows us, actually, after, after Jesus' wilderness temptation, between the temptation and John's imprisonment, there's a season of time, perhaps several months, when Jesus is out there preaching and teaching and his disciples are baptizing people, and John is out there preaching and teaching and baptizing people at the same time. And that's really what we have in view here. Jesus is in the Judean wilderness, not Galilee, he's in the south. He's in the Judean wilderness preaching and teaching. His disciples are baptizing folks. And John the Baptist is in Ainon near Salim. We don't know where that is. Perhaps in Samaria, somewhere in Samaria. Either way, it's not going to be very far away. And so we have both Jesus and John out there in the wilderness preaching and teaching, and folks are getting baptized. And it's all at the same time. That's interesting. And it sets the stage for what's coming. Now in verse 25, Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So we have this unnamed Jew who gets into a debate, a dispute, a fuss with John's disciples about purification. Who's the unnamed Jew? We don't know. He's not named. <laughs> we don't know who he is. Um, some have suggested maybe it's Nicodemus. That's just too easy. I mean, if it was Nicodemus, I think John would have told us yeah, it was Nicodemus. It may have been a Pharisee sent out from Jerusalem kind of investigating these itinerant preachers out here in the wilderness. What's that all about? We've seen that before. It may be, and it kind of lends itself to this, it may be this is somebody who's been out there listening to Jesus preach and teach and his disciples baptizing, and now he runs into John's guys, and he starts debating with them. They're debating purification. What does that mean? Don't know. And maybe they are discussing the difference between John's baptism of repentance and Jewish ceremonial washings, purification rites. They may be contrasting proselyte baptism with John's baptism of repentance. Proselyte baptism means that when a Gentile would convert into Judaism, they would go through a sort of baptism, a washing, and that's how they would come into Judaism. So maybe they're comparing and contrasting that. It kind of sounds like this, again, may be somebody who's been listening to Jesus and watching his disciples baptize, and now they're discussing the differences between John's baptism and, and the disciples of Christ, their baptism. That raises a question, what was that baptism? It wouldn't be Christian baptism, you know, as we do it today, because that's informed by the resurrection. So was the baptism that Jesus' disciples doing, was that like John's baptism, a baptism of repentance? More than likely, um, but we don't really know. Anyway, there's a fuss. There's an argument. And that argument, that debate, leads John's disciples to come complaining to John. All that gets us ready. Now we're ready to go to work. So if you have your bulletin, your listening guide on the back panel, let's notice the greatness of John the Baptist. Jesus said, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So look at the greatness of John the Baptist. His disciples come to him. In verse, 28, in verse 27, excuse me, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. Um, John's disciples are not happy. This is a complaint. If you remember back in chapter 1, Andrew and another unnamed disciple, probably John the Apostle, but Andrew and another disciple, they were following John the Baptist. One day Jesus shows up, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew and his buddy stop following John the Baptist and start following Jesus. So that's Andrew, possibly John the Apostle. These, these disciples, they weren't there that day, or they didn't get the memo. They're not Christ followers. They're John the Baptist followers. They love John the Baptist. He's their guy. And so they come complaining to John the Baptist. Rabbi. That's the only time in the Gospel of John the word rabbi is used for somebody other than Jesus. And it just means honored teacher at this point. An honored teacher. Honored Bible teacher. Rabbi. That guy who is with you across the river. They don't name Jesus. Maybe they don't know Jesus' name. Or maybe this is a passive-aggressive kind of a thing, you know, just that guy across the river. You remember the guy you called the Lamb of God, the one you testified, you know, you brought attention to him, you called him the Lamb of God, you gave him his big break. Well, now he's out there baptizing, and everybody's going to him. You know, you got to fix this. You got to do something about it. So they're upset. They're, they're frustrated. In other words, he's hurting our business. <laughs> that guy out there across the river, Jesus Christ, he's hurting our business. He's on our turf. He's stealing our sheep. <laughs> That's what he's doing. And so they're, they're protective of John the Baptist, and they're envious of the relative success of Jesus' ministry. They feel like Jesus is succeeding at John the Baptist's expense, and they don't like it. It is an attitude of competition and comparison. Now, that's not the first time that's ever happened. That's not the only time that's ever happened. You can go way back in the, in the book of Numbers, in the wilderness wanderings, the Spirit of God came upon two men in the, in the camp of Israel, uh, Medad and Eldad, and they began prophesying because the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. They began prophesying. Somebody comes to Moses and tells Moses, Moses, Medad and Eldad are out there prophesying. Joshua complains. Joshua says, Moses, you got to stop that. You got, you got to tell him, quit it. Moses says this in Numbers 11. He says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So Moses isn't insecure. He's not jealous. He said, listen, I wish everybody could get the Holy Ghost and start prophesying. I'm not worried about those guys. In Luke chapter 9, John the Apostle comes to Jesus. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow along with us. And Jesus said, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Again, that spirit of competition, our turf, our business. In the Corinthian church, the folks in the Corinthian church, they all had their own favorite Bible teacher and preachers, and it was turned into factions in the church. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians. He says, each of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, it's that attitude of competition and comparison. So his disciples, they're, they're frustrated, and they want him to do something about it. But now listen to John the Baptist. Here's the We've seen the competition between the disciples, but now listen to the contentment of John the Baptist. Here's, here's why he's, he's the greatest. 
the greatness of John the Baptist. Listen to his condemnment. Here's what John says in verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John's disciples are frustrated by the apparent success of Jesus' ministry at the expense of John's ministry. John's not frustrated. How can that be? Well, number one, John understood God's sovereign assignments. He understood God's sovereign assignments, that God sovereignly assigns roles and ministries and results. It's all, it's all in the hands of God. It comes from God. In verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. He understood that his ministry came from God. He understood that whatever people were reached under his ministry came from God. He understood that the crowds, whether they were big or small, whether they were growing or waning, came from God. He's just serving God in God's kingdom. And it's all, it's from God. It's about God and it all belongs to God. It's a sovereign assignment. Paul put it this way in first Corinthians four, seven, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you re did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What do you have that you didn't receive in terms of ministry? That means no preacher can stand up and say, look at what I built. Look at this ministry. Look at this great church that I built. Guess again. What do you have that you didn't receive? That's not just true for preachers and churches. Folks, that's true in your life. What do you have that you didn't receive? Every good gift comes from above, the Father of lights, in whom there's no shadow of turning. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, how can you boast like you didn't receive it? It all came from God. It's, it's the gracious, merciful generosity of God. So he understood God's sovereign assignments. Secondly, he understood his role. He understood his role, his ministry in verse 27 and verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. We're witnesses. We heard John say that. We, we heard that too. John understood he was not the light. He just came to bear witness of the light. John understood he's not the Messiah. He came to prepare the way of the Messiah. He's just a voice crying out in the wilderness. And then he, he, he illustrates it this way in verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John understood, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. What's the friend of the bridegroom? Think best man. <laughs> He's the best man in the wedding. Now, wedding customs and traditions would vary from place to place and from time to time. But the friend of the bridegroom is kind of like a, a best man and wedding planner and um, uh, master of ceremonies all in one. The friend of the bridegroom, he would be in charge of many of the details of the wedding. Uh, he would be involved in inviting people to the wedding. He would, he would be the master of ceremonies in the festivities. And he may very well be the one who would escort the bride from her father's house to the place of the wedding, probably the groom's house or the groom's father's house. But he would escort the bride to the wedding. So he was, he was involved in a whole lot of the details of the wedding. But the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, understood something very important. This ain't my wedding. I'm not the bridegroom. She's not my bride. I'm here for their union. 
So I'm, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And their joy is my joy. And what I want is a happy union between my friend, the bridegroom, and his bride. But it's not my wedding. It's not about me. It's not for me. That's a very important distinction. That's an interesting analogy because in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are called the, the, the bride of God, the wife of God, described in that way. And in the New Testament, you know that the church is the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. John understood his role, his ministry. He also understood humility. Listen to verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Boy, that's a good one to, to write down. I mean, that's a good life verse, isn't it? He must increase, I must decrease. That would change our lives. We ought to bring that home with us. You know, in my whole life, I need a whole lot more of Jesus and a whole lot less Jeff <laughs> in my life. He must increase, I must decrease. It needs to be more about him and less about me. But here it could also speak to John's ministry as well. Andreas Kostenberger is a New Testament scholar, specializes in John. He said this, the Baptist also makes clear that the purpose of his ministry was to elevate Jesus so that there was no rivalry between the two men. Moreover, since Jesus is on the ascendancy, John perceives that his ministry is about to come to a close. Makes sense, doesn't it? If his job is to prepare the way for the Messiah, now the Messiah is here. Okay, preparing the way is kind of done, isn't it? I'm here to announce the coming of the king. Well, now the king is here. So I don't really need to announce a whole lot anymore. So his ministry is coming to an end as Jesus' ministry begins. He must increase, I must decrease. It's just his role. It's his, it's his ministry, and it all comes from the hand of God. Well, we could learn a lot from John the Baptist. Here's, here's, we could learn the secret of a joyful ministry from John the Baptist. In verse 29, he says, so this joy of mine has been made full. John's not bitter. He's not jealous. He's not envious. He's, he's joyful. So this joy of mine has been made full. We can learn from him the secret of a joyful ministry. As you read the Gospels, we see ourselves in the disciples a whole lot more than we want to admit, don't we? I mean, there, sometimes you go, guys... Seriously, I mean, how, how could they miss what they missed? How can they not get it by now? But we're just like them. We see ourselves in them so much. And that's true of John's disciples. We're a lot like John's disciples. We don't want to admit it, though. Like John's disciples, we are obsessed with comparison and with competition. 99% of social media is comparison and competition. And I mean, it's, it's, it's not just social media though. I mean, we do this with every part of our lives. We do this with our careers. I'm farther in my career than you are, or you're farther in my career than I am, or I should be where you are. We do it with money. You make more money than I am. I have that. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> or, or I make more money than you. Well, that's, that's the way it ought to be. You know, uh, we do it with money. We do it with houses. My house is bigger than your house, or your house is bigger. It must be nice living in a house like that. You know, must be nice. We do this with jobs and careers. We do it with our kids. Hey, my kid can beat up your honor student. Have you seen that bumper sticker? You know, my kid's better than your kids or my dad can beat up your dad. I mean, we do this with every part of life. And the sad thing is we bring it to ministry, just like John's disciples. They're jealous of Jesus Christ, the son of God and his ministry. But we do this too. I can tell you one thing. Pastors do this for a living. Pastors are obsessed with comparison and competition. So how big is your church? You know, your church, I mean, they compare each other. They compare each other's ministries, compare each other's churches. I heard one pastor describe another pastor one time here in town. He said, oh, 
He's a good man, and, and he wants every church to do well. He just wants his to do better. <laughs> you know, he just wants his church to be the biggest and the baddest in town. That's, he just wants his church to do better. Just that comparison. Now, I got bad news for you, though. Churches do that too. Congregations compare, compare ministries, their youth ministry compared to our youth ministry or their song ministry compared to our music ministry or their preacher compared to our preacher. I heard y'all got a new pastor. Yeah. How do you like him? Well, he's a nice guy, but I tell you, he's no Chuck Swindoll. Well, it's a good thing because Chuck Swindoll would never pastor your church. I mean, it's a good thing. I mean, we're just this comparison, comparison and, and competition. We can learn a few things from John the Baptist. Here's the secret to a joyful ministry we can learn from John. One, just be who God has called you to be. Start there. Be who God has called you to be. You can't be someone else. Might as well be yourself. Just be you. Or, you know, as they say, you do you. <laughs> you do you. God uniquely created you. You have your unique background, your story. Nobody else has exactly your story your background, your experiences, where you grew up, your family. I mean, nobody's been through what you've been through the way you've been through it. You have your own unique story. And all along the way, God is shaping you into the person he wants you to be. If you know Christ, that's the word for that sanctification. God is causing all things to work together for good to them that love him and who are the called according to his purpose. And he is conforming you to the image of his son. He is growing you, maturing you, changing you, and shaping you. You might as well be that person. Because when you try to be someone else, you're just going to drive yourself crazy and you're going to be miserable. You can't compare apples and apples to oranges. I mean, you're just, you're just different. So you might as well be who God is shaping you to be. And then two, you might as well do what God has called you to do. Do what God has equipped you to do and do it the way he equipped you to do it. Again, God created you uniquely. You have your own set of background and experiences. You've been on this journey with God. And God has brought all these things together in your life, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows. And he's using all these things in your life to shape you and change you and to equip you and to prepare you, to mature you. I like the old saying, God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. I love that. He is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. He has used what has happened in your life up to this point. He's used that to shape you and to prepare you and to equip you for what God wants you to do now and in the future. So you might as well go and do that. Do that the way God has equipped you to do it. In other words, quit trying to be someone else. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? We're all different. People are just different. God created us different. And we have different backgrounds and different experiences. We have different strengths and weaknesses, different skill sets. We have different spiritual gifts. And God calls us into different ministries. How can you compare apples and oranges? I can't do what you do. And you can't do what I'm doing. And why should we? God has called you to do what he wants you to do. You ought to go do that. God has called me to do what he wants me to do. I ought to go do that. Just do what God has called you to do. Do it the way he has equipped you to do it. And then thirdly, do what you do for God. Here's the secret to a joyful ministry. Do what you do as unto the Lord. Do it for the Lord. If your life, I mean, we'll get to ministry in a second. If your life is about you, if your career is about you, if your family is all about you, my friend, you'll never be happy. Because it's never quite enough. It's never quite there. There's always something could be better. And you'll never compare favorably to others. There's always going to be somebody who has more, who has better, who does better, who achieves what you can't achieve. And there's always, I mean, you're just going to be frustrated. That's true in life. It's true 
in ministry as well. Whatever your area of ministry, whatever your service, whatever you're doing for the Lord, make sure you're doing it for the Lord. And all of a sudden, you're going to find freedom and contentment and joy because I have an assignment from God. I have an equipment and enablement from God, and I'm doing this for God. So it's of him, through him, and to him, and it's for him, and it's about him. And all of a sudden, I don't have to compare to someone else. I'm not in competition with anybody else. I'm just over here doing what God has called me to do in his kingdom for his glory. Freedom. That's the secret to a joyful ministry. John got it. So the joy of mine has been made full. Well, there's the greatness of John the Baptist. Now we get to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as we move to verses 31 through 36. I'll tell you, scholars can't decide. These verses, 31 through 36, is this John the Baptist still speaking? Or is this John the Apostle weighing in, giving us some extra commentary? Or are these the words of Jesus Christ? Hmm. And it's not really clear. It could go any, either of those directions. It's probably easiest, smoothest to take it as, as John the Baptist still speaking. But whoever is saying these things, the truth still stands. So let's take a look. As we look at the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we have the greatness of John the Baptist. But folks, if you want to talk comparison and competition, <laughs> Jesus wins. He is superior. He's supreme. Notice why. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So Jesus is supreme because he is from above and he is above all. He's from above. We heard Jesus say that in, in verse 13. No one, has, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. In John chapter 8, Jesus will say, you're from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. So if we want to compare Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you wanted to compare, well, bless his heart, John the Baptist is from the earth. That's not a bad thing. It just is what it is. Jesus is from above. He has a heavenly origin. Now you tell me, who is better equipped? Who's better suited to tell you heavenly things? The guy from the earth or the guy from heaven? The guy from heaven. He's superior. And because he's from heaven... He's above all. He's from above and he's above all. And it says that two times in that, in that verse. That's, rep that's repetitive. That's emphatic. It's important. So Jesus is superior. He is far greater than all. He's above all. Secondly, Jesus has firsthand knowledge. Here's the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. What he has seen and heard. In other words, it's firsthand testimony. Jesus can tell us heavenly things because he's from heaven. Been there, done that. He saw it, he heard it, he knows it. So he can tell us about heavenly things. He can tell us about eternity because he is eternal. In the beginning was the word. He is eternal, so he can tell us about eternity. He can tell us about the divine because he is divine and the word was God. He is God the Son. So he can tell us firsthand knowledge. He has firsthand testimony. He's not telling us what he heard, what he heard from someone else, what he learned. He didn't read a book or take a class. It's, it's not secondhand, thirdhand testimony. It's, it's not a word of revelation that he got from somebody. No, this is firsthand testimony. 
what he knows. And then it says, but no one receives his testimony. That's an overstatement for effect. That's like in chapter one. He came to his own and his own received him not. Now, some of his own did receive him. Not everyone rejected him, but the majority did. Well, not, it's not that no one received his testimony. Some did, but most didn't. And we get that in verse 33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So the one who receives his testimony, the one who believes what Jesus says, that when he talks about who he is and why he came, when he tells us heavenly things and earthly things, the one who receives his testimony, one who acknowledges his testimony as true, he understands this, God is true. He knows the God of truth and he knows the truth of God. Now, believing it doesn't make it true. He's just acknowledging what is true. And he sets his seal on it. He, he, he confirms it in that sense. He acknowledges that it is true. John will rephrase that a different way in 1 John 5. He says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. Saying the same thing, only different. So Jesus is supreme. He is superior. He's preeminent because he's from above and above all. Secondly, he has firsthand testimony, firsthand knowledge, firsthand testimony. Thirdly, he has spirit without measure. Spirit without measure. And verse 34, he whom God has sent, by the way, in the gospel of John, God sent the son. He sent Jesus. It says that like 39 times. You get the idea that God sent the son. <laughs> so whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon specific individuals for a specific purpose and for a specific time. Now, on this side of Pentecost, if, if you know Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So after Pentecost, every believer is indwelt by the Spirit. But it was different on the other side of Pentecost. Before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon specific individuals for a limited time for a limited purpose. Later on, the Jewish rabbis would believe and write that, that the Spirit of God came upon Old Testament prophets in different measures. But here, Jesus has the Spirit without measure, without limit. Or as Paul would say, in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now we go into the deep end of the pool with the mystery of the Trinity all over again. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God and three persons. One and three, three and one, all at the same time. Ooh, it'll give you a headache after a minute. But that's, we end up in that mystery. But he has the Spirit without measure. Here's another supremacy of Jesus Christ. We have this relationship between the Father and the Son in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There's this mysterious Union, this mysterious relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The Father loves the Son. Jesus touches on this on, on chapter 5 over, over the next page. Look at chapter 5 and verse 19. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the father who sent him. So we have this 
union, this relationship between the Father and the Son. If you have the Father, you got the Son, you got the Son, you got the Father. If you don't have one or the other, you have neither. I mean, it's this union, the Father loves the Son and has given all things to the Son. That's what we just read. Jesus says that in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, who gave him that authority? The Father. In John chapter 16, Jesus will say, all things that the Father has are mine. Whatever the Father has, it's mine. In Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So you have this relationship between Father and Son. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. If you want competition, there is no competition. You want to compare to Jesus? Nobody compares to Jesus. Not even John the Baptist. So we have the greatness of John the Baptist. We have the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then that brings us down to verse 36. And verse 36 is really kind of the the bottom line of the whole chapter. Here's the finish line. This This whole chapter, it began with a man named Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. Nicodemus, you must be born again, all that. And it all comes down to verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So now we see the consequence of choice. Here is the ultimate decision that every single person will face. Every every person will make. What do you do with Jesus Christ? You have to decide. What will you do with Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus Christ? We heard Jesus say, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. You have to be born from above. We heard in verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten son of God. You have to make a choice. And to to make no choice is to make a negative choice. You have to make a positive choice for Christ. To make no choice is a negative choice. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either redeemed or you're condemned. There is no middle ground. There's no neutral territory. There's no fence you can sit on and straddle and see how it goes. You have to to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? And it boils down to this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Well, we've heard that several times phrased in different ways. But whoever believes, there's our word believe, to pistuo, believe in, faith in, trust in. Whoever faiths in the Son has eternal life. You faith, you put your faith and trust in Christ. You, you understand and believe that he is the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He was raised again. He's alive today. And you put your faith in him. Not a church, not a denomination, not baptism, not your good works, not any. You trust Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. I trust you to forgive my sin and to save my soul. You put your trust in Jesus. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. And we saw already that eternal life is a quality of life and a quantity of life. It's a quality of life right now that you may know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent to know God. And it is a quantity of life that whoever believes in him will never perish. You'll never die. It's a quantity quantity and quality of life for those who believe in him. But those who do not obey the son will not see life. Now that's interesting. That caught me by surprise. I thought it would say, who does not believe? Kind of like verse 18. He who believes versus he who does not believe. 
Here it's he who believes versus he who does not obey the son. Interesting. As you read John and you jump over in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, as you read John, you find out to believe is to obey. You believe Jesus, guess what? You obey Jesus. You follow Jesus. You love him, you keep his commandments. Two sides, same coin. You disbelieve him, you disobey him. You disobey him because you disbelieve him. You don't believe. Two sides of the same coin. And the word here to, to disobey means a refusal to comply with the demands of some authority. To, to refuse to follow. You reject Jesus. It's really one or the other. And whoever refuses to obey, the one who disobeys, will not see life. He doesn't have eternal life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Paul will put it this way in Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God. And that's the only time we hear about the wrath of God in the Gospel of John. The wrath of God is not God losing his temper, flying off the handle, pitching a fit. The wrath of God is God's settled opposition to sin and wickedness. The wages of sin is death. That's the law of God. The wages of sin is death. And the one who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. We saw that eternal life is the present possession for the believer. You put your faith in Christ, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal life is yours right now. Not one day. It's already yours. A quality of life now and a quantity of life that never ends. It's a present possession. The one who does not believe on the Son He's already condemned. Not one day he'll be condemned. He's already condemned. And it's not one day the wrath of God will abide upon him. The wrath of God already abides upon him. It's already his present state and condition. You must be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. He that believeth shall see life. He that believeth not, one who does not obey the Son, he won't see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You have to decide for yourself, how, what are you going to do with Jesus? No one can make that decision for you. If, if they could, they would. You have to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus? Have you said yes to Jesus Christ? Have you been saved? If not, I invite you to come to him today, right now, this morning. In a moment, we'll stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I invite you to come to me and say, preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. I, I need eternal life. I want Jesus. However you want to say it. We'd love to have a private conversation with you, pray with you if you'd like to, but you could leave here today knowing that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home and Jesus is your Savior. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John chapter 3 and all the things that we have seen and learned over the weeks, especially today. We thank you for what we can learn from John the Baptist and the secret of a joyful ministry, how we can escape this attitude of competition and comparison and find joy in just doing what you've called us to do. And Lord, we pray for the one who does not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that you'd help them to understand that they are lost without hope, without God in the world, that the wrath of God already abides on them, that they are condemned already because they've not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Lord, bring them to the cross even now. You just take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.